recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org, and this is Christagenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, December 29th, 2012. Two more days and years over. My bet is that we'll all still be here in 2013. I'm sure some other CI pastors are disappointed at that. Once again, the material which we are about to present is a response which I had written for Clifton Emmerheiser's Watchman Teaching Letters. In response to a couple of articles found in the Free American News magazine, which Clayton Douglas had taken credit for but did not actually write himself, and which were written as an attack on and a discreditation of the Apostle Paul of Tarsus. Jews trying to pull the New Testament apart at the seams, patriots and identity Christians are gullible enough to adopt this trash scholarship, which is incredible, which is why we have to address these things. Douglas's articles were published in the December 2003 and January 2004 issues of that magazine. This material, in reply to Douglas, had originally appeared in Clifton's Watchman Teaching Letters numbers 93 and 94, which were dated for January and February of 2006. The material also appears on Christogenia in a lengthy article entitled, William Fink versus the Paul Bashers. It's about 180 pages, I believe. We introduced the Douglas articles at great length last week. In fact, it took the entire program. So tonight we are going to begin discussing the substance of Douglas's arguments against Paul of Tarsus after I introduce Sword Brethren. Hello, Brian. Hello, thank you for having me on again. How are we doing? I'm well, yourself? Wonderful. Any um, feedback, feelings, emotions last week? Remember the program? Yeah, Clay Douglas is basically a clown. He has a very elementary, not even basic understanding of the Bible, and he's a front man for someone who doesn't want to be who doesn't want to be outed and known. So he's not even putting forth his own ideas. Well, well, right. But I know so many people who have been fooled by this material. Longtime identity pastors, um, longtime identity adherents. Um, Pastor Mark Downey is in, in the forum listening to this program tonight. Two people from the the, um, the church that, that he attends with Don Elmore, Don Elmore's church, the Fellowship of God's Covenant People, two, two people left that church because they turned to Paul bashing, and they turned to Paul bashing with material much like what we're presenting here, the, the Graeber material and the Douglas material. And, and these are long-time people, and, and not everybody who's in, who, who's in Christian identity a long time is necessarily well-read, but you would think that they, that they would be better read than, to see, than, than not to be able to see through this t- subterfuge. I know Paul Bashers in, in, from England to South Africa to California. It's incredible. And and the material that they're persuaded by is basically a material very similar to what we've been presenting in this series. So we would expect them to have better discernment. Well, well, yes, they should have better discernment. 
most identity Christians understand that there are many mistranslations in the Bible, and, and there's a cognitive disconnect when Paul bashers get to the letters of Paul and want to accept his words as they are written in our mainstream Bibles. And, and, and it's, I, I don't understand it. I, I can understand where good people want to reject universalism. But Paul, the, 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 the passages in Paul of Tarsus, which are seen as promoting universalism, first, that they're all mistranslations or they're being taken out of context, one or the other. No, no, no doubt about it. But second, there are just as many universalist passages, or, or I'm, I'm sorry, there are just as many passages which are abused by universalists in Matthew and Mark and John. So if we threw out any passage that a universalist is going to distort, we'd be left with basically nothing for a Bible. Well, well right. If, if, if the Bible was um, five words, all white people go to heaven. I'm sorry, six words, I can't count. If the Bible was six words, all white people go to heaven, you would still find universalists attempting to pervert and corrupt those six plain words. Well, sure, they would, they would say, oh, heaven's a state of mind, heaven's not a place, and they would start saying, oh, well, white people, well, we'll just loosen the definition of what constitutes white. Well, well right, like maybe we'll, 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 maybe we'll jack it down about 15%, huh? <laughs> maybe 85% will be good enough. <laughs> it, it's, inc it, it's incredible. No matter what um, document you base and any rigid belief upon, you are always going to have the corruptors, the twisters, the perverts who, who attempt to mold that document to their own image. That, right. Well, look at our Constitution real quick. I just want to say the Second Amendment says the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Then the First Amendment mentions the people, the Fourth Amendment, the people. And the leftists would have us believe that the people in the First Amendment means regular folks. They can say what they want, believe what they want. But the people in the Second Amendment, oh, that's the government, the National Guard. So they, they don't even agree that the people means the people. It means whatever they want it to mean. And, and that's a, a good example of those, the, the subterfuge of those who would corrupt every society, every white society, and try, try to um, grade the lines um, fringe the edges and and anything to to um to create a society where everything is relative, so that it could be pliable and bent into their own agenda. That that's the bottom line. And, and here we have it with Paul Bashers. When the Paul Bashers managed to convince us to discard the letters of Paul of Tarsus, well then Luke has to follow. And after Luke, then two Peter has to go. The, um, <clears throat> the letters of Politarsis are the only places where certain types of behavior are explicitly, explicitly um, barred from, 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 from the Christian lifestyle, talking about homosexuality, lasciviousness, drunkenness, things like that. Without Paul, there is nothing in the New Testament telling us to, to um, ostracize homosexuals and adulterers and, and fornicators. 
it, it's well. I would think that the overall message, though, when Jesus said that He brings nothing new and He's not here to destroy the law, He's validating the law. So just because He didn't sit there and reiterate every single word of the law, it doesn't mean that somehow all that doesn't matter anymore. Well, well, right. well, well. It says, "He who keeps my commandments, he who loves me, keeps my commandments." But since he only vociferates the Ten Commandments in the Gospel and not his commandments specifically, well, well, that leaves a whole lot of room open for gray area, right? Right. Well, people that are evil that want to twist and distort. But if I go into physics and I want to build on the work of Isaac Newton, I don't restate all of his work because it's already established 300 years ago. I just build and I, I write about what I want to write about, what becomes my work. But that doesn't mean that I don't believe what you know Isaac Newton would have believed. So, you know, Jesus didn't come to restate every little word of the law. I mean, that the law was automatic, wasn't it? I mean, there, it wasn't, back then it wasn't taken for granted. People knew the law. He didn't need to tell them every little word of the law. They'd grown up with the law. Right? I mean, that, that wasn't the purpose of his ministry. He didn't come just to be a, a walking dictionary of the law. Well, situational ethics, relative morality, that they're, they're all that they are all promulgated through society by the same group of people over and over again. And, and they're the corruptors of all things. That there's no doubt the the Jews and Jewish thinking has perverted Western civilization. It's perverted our view of our traditions, our laws, our Bible, and, and they will always be at it. The Paul bashers have fallen their victims. So these are the same people that gave us case precedent. So it's not what the Constitution says or what the law says. It's who can make a better argument that fits the situation. Well, well right, and that's what the Talmud is all about. If you've ever read the, the – the, um, I haven't read the whole thing, but I've read enough parts of it to understand the, the, um, the Mishnah, the commentaries on the law in the Talmud, they do exactly that. They make arguments – which basically illustrate how to get around the biblical laws and, and, and the ideas that left and, and right or, or good and evil are solid and immovable. That they rationalize ways to get around the law, which is why you can sleep. Well, when you're a Jewish rabbi, you, you, you can defecate um, in, in public, yet you can fornicate with little boys under a certain age. You, you can um, violate little girls under a certain age and rationalize your way around that in, into making it a, a moral and even sometimes a just decision. It, it's crazy. Well, you know, in the book of Baza Mitzia, there are five or six rabbis arguing over which one has the, um, the larger genitalia. They actually spend a page or two arguing this, and this is what they call a holy book. Well, they're the corruptors of all things. There's no doubt. The Jew is corrupter of all things. Well, the contrary to all men, and Paul talked about that, and that's why they have to undermine him. Absolutely. Well, we should start with um, Clayton Douglas, or should I say Brother Nazariah. I, I think that's who really wrote this. I can't prove that, but but it, it, it large parts of it sound like his perverted Jesus freak hippie Jew reasoning. Um it, it's this is Clayton. Clayton Douglas took the credit for this work, so he deserves the label, I gather. Should we start with his um, arguments bashing Paul of Tarsus? 
right. Are we starting on reference one, then? That's a good place. Uh, Douglas states, the seduction of Judeo-Christianity or Pauline Christianity, Saul of Tarsus, Paul, a different view. A magical effect is like a seduction. Both are built through careful details planted in the mind of the subject, Saul Stein. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles. Are they even so? Every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that bears not good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruit. So I, I suppose then Clay Douglas is going to be chopped down and thrown into the fire. Well, right. It, it's fitting. This is fitting. I mean, the whole thing about fruits, that, that, that's, um, that, that's all relative, right, to, to your, right. Your, your point of view. It, it's fitting that Douglas opens this diatribe against Polytarsus with a quote about deception from a Jew. Paul himself warned us against Jew deceivers, yet the Paul bashers embraced the Jews in their writings. And, and we're going to find that out throughout Douglas's argument, that this has already been demonstrated when, when we um, address the Paul bashing of Graeber in the first four segments of this series. And it shall also be demonstrated concerning all of these Paul bashing arguments of Douglas that that they um that that they basically embrace John Spong and Jacqueline Prince. John Spong wasn't well well, he may not have been a Jew. He he was raised a Christian, but he he Speaking about knowing someone by their fruits, the man was at the vanguard of the civil rights movement. He, he was holding the hands of little Negro children, bringing them into white schools. And later, he was the first um, Episcopalian bishop, if I have to call him that, to ordain sexual deviants, homosexuals, into the Episcopalian church in the 1980s, and, and that caused a major rift in that church. Well, well, that's the type of people the Paul Bashers follow. Here, Clayton Douglas opens his arguments by quoting a Jewish magician. I wonder, if he's going to quote Jews to tear in the Paul, why doesn't he just go one step further and quote Karl Marx and write something, according to the learned lawyer, Karl Marx, religion is the opiate for the masses. Well, 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 he is, well, well, right. You're absolutely right. And, and he almost did that, or, or I'm sorry, Graeber almost did that when he quoted George Bernard Shaw. So if they're going to attack Paul and attack 80% of the New Testament, the next step, though, is just to attack Christianity in general and start quoting atheists and outright communists like Marx. Well, well, the total disconnect is that Christians should never follow a Jew or any sexual deviant, when they, they seek guidance concerning the New Testament or the Old Testament. You, you can't follow a Jew seeking biblical guidance. The Jews are co the, the corruptors of everything biblical. If they didn't believe Christ, why should we ever believe or accept them? We're told explicitly to reject everything that comes from the Jew. Right, so why would anyone want to consult with a deviant for how to live a clean, moral life? Well, well, exactly. Reference two. Clay Douglas cites Paul, let every person render obedience to the governing authorities, 
for there is no authority except from God, and those in authority are divinely constituted. We're, we're going to address this at great length in, um, I, th- I think it's section 8 or section 9 of this document. And, and we probably won't get to it until next week. However, in brief, I can address it in brief. Douglas is quoting Romans chapter 13. And in Romans chapter 13, Paul is basically teaching an expanded version of the words of Yahshua Christ. And I'll give two instances where Yahshua Christ agrees with Romans chapter 13. The first instance is when he tells Pilate, the governor, the Roman governor of Judea, he tells Pilate, you would not have any power over me unless it was given to you from above. The second instance is where he reads the inscription and sees the image on a coin and asks whose inscription and image it is and finds that it's the image and inscription of Caesar, at that time Tiberius Caesar, and he says, well, renders under Caesar unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and render unto God what is God's. That, that is two occasions, very clear occasions in the, in the New Testament, where Yahshua Christ himself accedes to worldly authorities. And he does that because, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 13, worldly authorities, whether they're tyrannical or not, is beside the point. They exist because God wants them to exist. They come to power because God, Yahweh our God, wants them to come to power. Christians have to understand, reading Romans chapter 13, where Paul basically tells us that we are going to be subject to tyrannical powers, and we don't have much choice, so we may as well go along with it. And a lot of patriots reject that, but they don't understand that the children of Israel were put under 2,520 years of punishment. It was decreed by Yahweh that the children of Israel would live through the tyrannies of those great um, empires that we see prophesied in the book of Daniel. And, and there was no way around that. It was the word of God. And, and, and because of, of the actions or the inactions of our ancient ancestors, that the word of God dictated that, and there's no way around it. So we may as well roll with it so that we can concentrate on building the kingdom of God and edifying the people of God because we can't escape the tyranny. Daniel, Yahweh told, through the mouth of the prophet Daniel, Yahweh told Nebuchadnezzar that wherever the children of men dwell, you will rule over them. And I'm paraphrasing, but that's what it says in Daniel chapter 2. And patriots don't understand that. They're trying to throw off the yoke of tyranny on their own, and and it's just not going to happen. And the scripture and the word of God say it's not going to happen. It's going to be God's will when it does fall. And that's, that, that's you know, a lot of um, well-intentioned Christian identity Christians don't understand that aspect of scripture, and they really, when that they don't like me for trying to explain it to them because they don't want to hear it. That's the bottom line. That, that, you know, when, um, if, if you read, if, if you read um, 
Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the, the children of Israel being taken off from Jerusalem, and some of them were really children of Israel. They weren't all Canaanites in, in Jerusalem at that time in 585 B.C. that went off into the Babel. There were good figs and there were bad figs, and the good figs were told. The good figs were told. The children of Israel were told that it was Yahweh's decree that they went off into captivity in Babylon, and they were told that they would do a lot better if they just went with it and obeyed the king of Babylon than if they resisted and tried to seek refuge in Egypt. They were told explicitly if they resisted the Babylonian tyranny, they would be punished even more. And that's basically what Paul is teaching in Romans chapter 13. Right. It's a damn shame identity Christians don't understand that. Reference three. Clay Douglas states, Jesus Christ, real name, Emmanuel or Esu, it was Saul who changed Emmanuel's name, did not found Christianity. Paul did. Now, now this blunders on ridiculous, right? Now, this is damned funny. This is funny. Anyone who... who well, well, first, I, I have a pamphlet, Yahshua to Jesus, Evolution of a Name. It's an essay on Christogenia, and, and it presents all of the linguistic evidence presented showing the various forms of Christ's given name, which was Yahshua. There's no doubt it was Yahshua. Paul did not go into the, the, the scriptures in Matthew and change Matthew, and Paul didn't go into the, the, the Gospel of Mark and change what, wherever the name appeared. I mean, I mean this is just incredible. That this charge is incredible. Only a Jew prosecutor could come up with a charge like this. And, and I've seen him do it in real life, right? And I can't imagine from which of the pits of hell Douglas, Douglas contrived this, this corruption, that this Esu, he's calling Christ Esu, E-S-U, as his given name. And, and, and because I can't imagine where the hell he got it from, I can't comment on it since I've never seen it in any manuscript, in any lexicon, in any ancient document. And I think some Jew just tricked Douglas into using it because it's a farce, right? The the title Emmanuel, he calls him Esu Emmanuel and insists that that's his original name. And Paul changed his name to Jesus or Yahshua or, or, or whatever. The title Emmanuel has more credibility and I've seen identity Christians insist that Christ's name should be Emmanuel, and they don't read all of the gospel, right? In Matthew one twenty three, quoting from Isaiah seven fourteen, Matthew states at one twenty three, "Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel," which being interpreted is God is with us. And I've seen a lot of identity Christians take off with that. But they didn't read Matthew one twenty one, where the angel commanded Joseph, thou shalt call his name Yahshua, or Jesus in Greek. At Luke one thirty one, we see that his mother Mary received the same instruction, when, where she was told that she shall call his name Yahshua, or Jesus in Greek. Now a discerning mind can see one difference here immediately. The angel told his parents, you shall call his name Yahshua. And therefore, Yahshua was his given name. 
Then the angel told his parents, a couple of verses later in Matthew, they shall call his name Emmanuel. And that's basically a prophecy. He stated a prophecy that the people, the people, they, not the parents, would at some later point call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel is a Hebrew word. It's actually a Hebrew phrase, which means God is with us, which is exactly what the people did later say of Christ. So what's Douglas's problem? Well, well, right. Douglas's problem is that he's listening to some Jew or he doesn't understand these simple concepts. All you have to do is read the Gospel of Matthew, right? You, you, oh, don't only read one, you read the whole thing, right? <laughs> well, who's he mad with? The parents? The angel? Who? Well, well he's mad at Paul because he says that Paul changed his name. <laughs> that That doesn't... Yeah, you know, because because they shall call his name Emmanuel, that doesn't mean that his name wasn't Jesus or Yahshua. Simon, Simon was called Simon the son of Jonah, Simon Bar Jonah. He he was called Peter by Christ, and that, that doesn't, doesn't mean, mean that Christ Peter, changed his name. Christ didn't change his name. Christ called him Peter, and later on he was known as Simon Peter, or sometimes just Simon or sometimes just Peter, Petros in Greek, and sometimes Kephas, which is the Hebrew equivalent of Peter. It, it doesn't mean his name was changed. It's, it's, it's incredible that Douglas would claim that he, he, his name has to be Isu Emmanuel, and it can't be Yahshua or Jesus, which is the name his parents gave him, and, and he read Matthew 123 and forgot to read Matthew 121, I guess. Douglas insists it was Saul who changed Emmanuel's name. Did Paul of Tarsus write Matthew 121? No. Mark 1.1 states the beginning of the Gospel of Joshua Christ. Did Paul write that? No. Could Paul go back and change Matthew? Matthew was written before um, Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew was most likely written before Paul's ministry began. And, 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 and that, that's... That there's no proof at all that Paul could have changed any documents, never mind all of them. That, that's incredible. Paul didn't write Luke one thirty one. It, it's 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 ridiculous. It's a ridiculous claim. The name Jesus appears in John's Gospel alone, referring to Christ over two hundred and forty times. Now it can be proven. It can be proven in, in the ancient in the writings of the ancient um, the earliest Christians, the Ante Nicene Fathers, they're called by mainstream churchianity, the, the church bishops and leaders who wrote um, the works that survived to us in the first, second, and I'm sorry, in the second and third centuries um, AD. It can be proven without doubt that the Gospel of John was written 30 years after Paul of Tarsus died. And, and the name Jesus appears in it, or Jesus appears in it, over 240 times. Paul couldn't have changed that. <laughs> I don't know, maybe Paul could have changed that. I, I guess John's in on a conspiracy. Well, well, I guess so, but you know, the Jews would love to get rid of John, too. And, and some Jews have already tried to... Um, 
sow seeds of doubt concerning the gospel of John in in in, in certain um, sects of churchianity. What's the uh, the mainstream churchianity's objection to John then? I mean, I understand why the Jews would hate it, but I don't know how would they sell an anti-John line to say the Episcopalians or whoever it might be. Well, well, I'm not sure exactly how they go about it, but I've, I've read bits and pieces over the last couple of years that that they try to sow doubt about the Gospel of John and its legitimacy in Christian churches, in Christian circles. I haven't seen it come to a head yet where it's actually gotten popular. Douglas makes a claim. Douglas makes a claim, and, and we'll see it that um, Paul wrote almost two thirds of the New Testament. And, and I would like to ask Douglas which um, third he didn't write, because I'm sure we'll find the name Jesus Christos in that third, right? I don't know. Douglas would be able to answer that. Douglas states that Paul and not Yahshua founded Christianity. And I have an answer to that. The historian Josephus wrote after 70 AD. He wrote after Paul's death, right? Josephus, Paul, Paul's um, death is in the reign of Nero, and Nero died in 65 AD, so Paul or perhaps early 66. So Paul had to have been dead by the time Nero died. And the historian Josephus did not write his antiquities until after 70 AD and the fall of Jerusalem. And Josephus tells us in Antiquities chapter, I'm sorry, book 18, chapter 3, that Jesus, or Jesus, a wise man, was the Christ. And the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct at this day. Now, Josephus never mentioned Paul of Tarsus. And Josephus was a Pharisee and a follower of those who persecuted Paul of Tarsus. Did Paul write Josephus? Because Josephus attributes the founding of the sect of Christians to Christ and not to Paul. I have another example, and, and these will come in handy to Christians who, who listen to this program because everybody's always, you know, a lot of people doubt that there's records from the first century of Christ, right? Well, um, a lot of people might say, well, that passage of Josephus was interpolated. There's absolutely no proof that it was interpolated into any manuscripts. There's no proof of that. There's no proof that that's not an original passage. The, um, that, that I've ever read, the Roman chronicler Tacitus also mentions what he called the notoriously depraved Christians. Tacitus was a pagan Roman. He did not like the Christians. And Tacitus, who, who was writing about probably about 90 AD, that, that's um, at, at, at least 25 years after Paul's dead, Tacitus wrote, their originator, Christ, had been executed in Tiberius's reign by the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate. That comes from 
that comes from Tacitus's writing the Annals of Rome, his book, it's a whole book, the Annals of Rome, chapter 15. Tacitus wrote this in reference to Nero's persecution of Christians. Tacitus never mentioned Paul of Tarsus in connection with the founding of Christianity. So we have two first century witnesses that Christ founded Christianity and not Paul. Now, if I'm not mistaken, Paul was a Roman citizen who was given due process under Roman law, as was the custom. He was able to demand that he be taken to Caesar. Didn't he say, you know, um, he, he demanded of the governor, I am a Roman citizen, and the, the, the governor said, if you call on Caesar, unto Caesar, well, you know, that shall go. Well, well right. So it's because of uh, Rome. Paul, that they wanted to try Paul for, for a capital offense. He had every right to appeal to Caesar because being born in Tarsus of a family of Roman citizens, that even though they were Judeans and even though they were Pharisees, they were still Roman citizens. And um, because of the circumstances of his birth, and he had every right to appeal to Caesar. Rather, right. rather than be tried for, for a capital offense in, in Jerusalem, where Christ was not a Roman citizen, having been born in Judea, which was an imperial province, and, and um, its citizens did not have the rights of Roman citizen, citizenship at the time that Christ was born. It, it was actually a kingdom. It was a subject kingdom when Christ was born in, in, the, um, in the reign of Herod that the Jews like to call the Great. Well, well um, Christ was not a Roman citizen, and therefore he had no right to appeal to Caesar, the Roman governor was the final authority. Right, so Paul was executed in Rome in the year before Nero's death, right? I mean, Nero committed suicide in 68, was it, during a civil war? Do you think he committed suicide? I I don't know. Either he he committed suicide or someone helped him. Right. Paul probably died in 64 or 65 in Rome. All right. So there's no evidence then that Paul ever had any contact with Josephus, and Tacitus would have only been about, what, 10 or 15 years old at the time of um, Paul's death? Right. Neither Josephus nor... nor, It's unlikely that Paul ever had any any contact with Josephus. It's possible, but it's unlikely. It's um, definitely unlikely that Paul had any contact with Tacitus. Who, who must have been a very young man. Right, because I think Tacitus was born in the early 50s. I might be mistaken. It might have been the mid-50s, but suffice to say Tacitus wouldn't have even been a teenager at the time Paul died. Right. So what is Clay Douglas? Is he trying to grasp at straws that Tacitus and Josephus are in on the conspiracy now? Well, well, all of this might sound good if you really don't know your Bible. You, you, you may have read parts of the Bible, or you may have read the Bible once but never really studied it, because reading it is just isn't enough, right? And, and if you don't know anything about history, and most people don't know a damn thing about history, all of this can sound good, and, and it fools a lot of people. when you start scratching the surface and digging, the dates don't add up, and it's clear that these people were not in contact in some great conspiracy. So Douglas and his little clique, they're counting on ignorance. Well, well, absolutely. The Jews always count on ignorance. And you know something? Most of the time their bet is right. 
The, the entire Jewish media out, out, out in the mainstream world today counts on the ignorance of the people in, in order to be able to continually deceive them. And, and in, in 99 out of 100 cases, they're right. I once encountered a woman who she defiantly said that she wasn't going to study languages to learn the Bible or to read the Bible, and that English was enough for her. She wasn't going to study history to, to learn the Bible, and that it, was, it wasn't necessary. But it, it was suffice. It, it was sufficient for her to simply read it in English, and that was it. Well, that, like you said earlier, that doesn't make you a Bible scholar. It makes you a King James scholar, a scholar of somebody else's translation. And that's pretty much the the state of Christianity these days. That's the the limit of their intellectual activity, isn't it? They they read the Bible a few times in English, and they're a scholar. Well, right. That that's a lot. Too many people feel that way especially those who are King James-only adherents, the, the people who think that the King James Bible is the Word of God, that they're the worst scholars. So do they think the original Ten Commandments on the tablets of stone handed to um, Moses, do they think that those are written in English? Well, well, no, but they basically think that Jesus Christ came down and, and, and landed in Westminster Abbey sometime in the early 17th century and just handed the King James, King James the Bible, and, and that's the Word of God. It, it's it like a cartoon. An infallible word of God. I, I mean, I might be exaggerating that belief a little bit, not much. The, the result is the same. They believe the King James Bible it is the infallible word of God, and it's sick. It, it's a sick book. Yeah, you have to be a sick bastard to believe that. It's, it's incredible. I, I can't believe that anybody would be fooled by that, especially especially when in the Westminster Confession, the people that created the King James Bible admit that if there's any contention of the faith, that the original languages would be the final authority and should be investigated. They admit that in, in their own writing, and the people, that the King James-only advocates of today, are, are actually denying the words of the people that created the King James Bible. It's incredible. I, 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 I don't know. There's no real difference between. Sorry, go on. Go on. Go ahead. I just wanted to say there's no real difference between them and the Catholics. The Catholics think some tired old man sitting on a throne in a palace in Rome is infallible, and the evangelicals think that some book written by a bunch of men in the 17th century is infallible. Well, well, right. When I was a child in Catholic school, well, we didn't read the Bible. We read the Catechism, and you got everything you believe from the Catechism. And the catechism was just a bunch of Catholic hogwash. It was just a, a, a book written by man interpreting certain parts of Scripture and, and, and codifying Catholic behavior and Catholic beliefs, and, and, and it's garbage. It's the, the law of man. Well, well, what you know, what people don't understand is that Paul of Tarsus was basically the glue that stuck the gospel to the people of Europe. In order for the Old Testament prophecies <clears throat> concerning the repentance of genetic Israel, who are not Jews, to be fulfilled, and the return of genetic Israel, who are not Jews, to Yahweh, which the book of Hosea and most of the book of Isaiah and great portions of the books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel are all about, the gospel of Yahshua Christ had to succeed in Europe. 
Peter went to Babylon by his own admittance. Peter went to Babylon, 1 Peter 5.13. It's only conjectured that he meant Rome metaphorically. Peter went to Babylon. And this first epistle was addressed only to those Israelites of Anatolia, Asia Minor. James remained in Jerusalem, and he died there. He died there about 62 AD. Josephus actually records the death of, of James, the brother of Christ. John, the Apostle John, he made it to Ephesus. He was exiled at Patmos for a time, but he made it to Ephesus in his elderly years. He, he was probably around 90 years old, and, and 85 at least, when he wrote his Gospel in the Revelation. Well, there, many, there, there were many Israelites. There, there were Israelites of many tribes, Greeks, Celts, Romans, Parthians, and others in those areas where those apostles are found. But the bulk of lost Israel were in Europe, or were soon to be in Europe during the mass migrations of the 5th centuries, 4th and 5th centuries. We have stories. We have stories of apostles in Ireland and Spain at an early time. And there had to be an apostle in, in the British Isles and, and in Ireland at an early time because they did receive Christianity at an early time and they didn't receive it from Paul of Tarsus. But they have no lasting writings. Where are their works? Where, where, where are their epistles? Where are their teachings? While we have stories of apostles in Ireland and Spain at an early time, we have no substantial and contemporary writings from the Irish or the Spanish to prove it. We have no legacy in, in literature. But with surety, we know that Paul brought the gospel to Europe, initiating the fulfillment of those prophecies. And even, and, and Clifton's, repeated some of this information in some of his papers, the, the, the Irish church, the Celtic church, a lot of people like to call it the Chaldee church, which did develop independently of the Roman church and was never under Rome's authority until the, the English sold it out to Rome in the 12th century. Or maybe it was the 13th century, I forget. Even they, as, as um, Leslie Hardinge wrote in the Celtic church in Britain, they cherished a deep love of the Bible and from the epistles of St. Paul developed their theology. The, the Celtic church had a deep regard for Paul of Tarsus, even though Paul of Tarsus never stepped a foot. And, and in spite of certain British Israel tales and, and, and the legends of Glastonbury, Paul of Tarsus never stepped a foot in Britain or Ireland, yet they still held a deep respect for him. And, and, and it was Paul of Tarsus who was the glue that stuck the gospel to the European people. And, and by that, they did fulfill those prophecies. He was the tool which Yahweh used to do that. You were saying. Um, you mentioned John of Patmos. So you would then vehemently disagree with these modern revisionists who claim that the Apostle John and John of Revelation are two different Johns. Well, well, in in um, in my Christlike series, I, I, I prove from the the, the it, it's easy to prove. Just read the Revelation. Just read one John, the 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 Epistle one John. There is no doubt whatsoever that the same John wrote the first Epistle of John, probably the second and third, but 
I'm not even going there. The first epistle of John, the Revelation, and the Gospel of John were all written by the same man as those writings attest. Now, the test of those writings is whether or not they are inspired. And if the prophecies of the Revelation have come true, then we must believe that the same John that wrote the Gospel wrote the Revelation because the author of the Revelation states, in not so many words, that he wrote the Gospel. Right. So the modern naysayers, then, are these just the same people that are pushing the Gnostic Gospels to distract and destroy? Well, well the Gnostic Gospels, the Paul bashing, the John bashing, the Luke bashing, it, it doesn't matter. They're perverts. That They're unlearned and corrupted minds. Would you read reference four? All right, reference four. Clay Douglas states, Paul crafted Christianity as we know it today. In reality, we learned little about Emmanuel's actual life on earth, his experiences, and his teachings from the scriptures. Astonishingly, Jesus did not really create the basis for Christianity. As a matter of fact, Emmanuel, Jesus, warned his followers not to organize a formal church network from his teaching, but rather encouraged them to pray in small and formal groups. Most of the New Testament doesn't even concern the historical Jesus, while the main influence and focus is the Apostle Paul. It was Paul of Tarsus who renamed Emmanuel Jesus Christ, although Emmanuel had consistently cautioned all of his followers not to be fooled by those who would falsify his name and call him Jesus the Messiah, that he was not the Messiah come to save anyone. Well, this just makes me wonder immediately, has Clay Douglas actually read the Gospels? Well, well, I think, and, and I wrote it. <laughs> I wrote it in my response. So few words and so many lies, right? I'm beginning to wonder whether someone swapped Clay Douglas's Bible with a copy of the Talmud, and he never noticed it. He, he never well, noticed it. <laughs> if, if Jesus publicly declared that he wasn't the Messiah, what, what verse is that? I mean, is this something out of like you know Baba Mezia or Baba Batra? I mean, it, it doesn't sound like it's coming out of the Gospel of Mark or John. Well, well, he makes no citations and any events his own philosophy, right? And, and under the slightest scrutiny, it disintegrates. So it, he's a rabbi. Well, well, absolutely. He proves right here that that he is basically between the ears. He's a Jew. Well, when he talks about Christianity, he, he's taking the the entire Jewish position on Christianity. He can't make citations. This is his, well, this, I thought when I wrote this that this was Douglas's own philosophy until I learned that Clay Douglas was basically a, um, a very imprudent man and a very unintelligent one, and he only took somebody else's writing and put his name on it and, and published it as if it was his. But he really never looked into these things, and, and he basically admitted that to me. Now, now, where did Christ warn his followers not to organize a formal church network? Now, now, I'm not advocating a formal church network, but where did he warn his followers not to, not to cre- organize one? He never did that. I only want to know where the warning is, and, and there, there, there is no warning not to form a formal church network. He oh, uh, said that we're two or, I think he said we're two or more gathered in his name that the Father would be present. Well, well, right. That, that's right. 
But the truth is that Christ never, um, Christ never provided a schematic for Christian community. He never did. I, I mean, the society provided the schematic. The, 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 the Old Testament provided the schematic, which is what I believe Christ expected of us. The Old Testament scriptures, read the scriptures, search the scriptures. The, the, um, the design of Christian community proposed by Paul is nothing like what the Catholic Church became. And Paul proposed no formal megachurch. There was no organized church anywhere in the writings of Paul. I don't know where Douglas gets off that there is. The, the, the Catholic Church, as we know it, didn't even begin to take shape until the 6th century AD. It wasn't until the time of Justinian that the Bishop of Rome was given any authority at all over any of the Christian assemblies outside of Rome. The bishops of Rome never had any authority of Christian assemblies outside of Rome until the time of Justinian. And that can't be blamed on Paul. Paul only proposed that each individual community assembly of Christians govern itself with the elders appointing an overseer or a supervisor, which is called a bishop from the Greek word from the Greek word for the for the title. And those elders or over, those overseers or supervisors in Paul's writings would answer to the people that appointed them and never to anybody else. And the same thing for ministers and teachers and other servants of the assembly. That's all Paul ever set up were, were small, local community assemblies. The idea of a, of a one true Catholic church didn't come for another 600 years. Even at Nicaea, where they decided on a canon, most of the matters of interpretation of the scripture were left to the individual bishops. Even after the Council of Nicaea. It, it's in, it, it's, it, it's um, the, the blaming of Paul for the Catholic Church is something that I've heard far too often in Christian identity circles. That they, they, they accede to that. Their ignorance of early Christianity forces them to think that the, the Catholic Church is telling the truth about its claims. And, and they're ridiculous. That they're historic, the claims of the Catholic Church to have been founded by Peter and Paul are absolutely ridiculous and, and historically without any merit whatsoever. And, and the Paul bashers buy into those lies. Douglas complains that from the scripture we learn little about Emmanuel's actual life on earth. First, uh, uh, first that wouldn't be Paul's fault because Paul It wasn't his position to write a life of Christ. I don't. Well, Paul wasn't a friend of Jesus, was he? Does Douglas want Jesus the miniseries? 
that they want Jesus goes to high school, that they want the Jesus diet. The Jesus diet is in Leviticus chapter 11 and Deuteronomy chapter 14. You could take Deuteronomy chapter 14 and print off little pamphlets and call it the Jesus diet and probably sell a million copies. Some Jew will become a millionaire off of that. That's a good idea. <laughs> but, well, I, I can't do you, you can stop building web, you, you can stop building websites for people. Let's get working on that book. Right, the Jesus diet, Deuteronomy. But what does he want, the, the, the life and times of Christ? I mean, Paul and Jesus weren't childhood friends, were they? Well, well, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote exactly what they thought necessary for us to have. And we know a lot more about the life of Christ than we know for, for, from, from contemporary sources now. That's important to, to, to qualify here. We know a hell of a lot more about the life of Christ from contemporary sources than we know about any of the Roman emperors from before the second century A.D. Because we don't know anything. We don't know anything about Tiberius Caesar from contemporary sources, except the little bits and pieces that Tacitus wrote. Caligula, we know nothing about Caligula from contemporary sources. Nothing at all. The, the, the chapters that Tacitus wrote about Caligula are missing. The reign of Claudius, half of the reign of Claudius and half of the reign of Nero are missing from Tacitus's writings. They, they, they were... They disappeared. I won't say they were destroyed. They disappeared. They mysteriously disappeared over time. We, we don't know anything about Caligula until you get to Suetonius, the, the second century Roman historian who wrote Lives of the Caesars. We, we don't know anything about Alexander the Great from contemporary sources. Nothing. We know very little about Julius Caesar from contemporary sources. The, the historians that told us the most about Julius Caesar except for Caesar's writings himself, the historians who told us the most about him lived in the next generation and wrote years after his death. Same thing for Augustus Caesar. It's we know more about the life of Christ than, than, um, than we do about most ancient rulers from contemporary sources. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were all contemporary sources. So, so that's a totally false claim. And to blame Paul of Tarsus for, for because we only know a little bit about Christ because we don't have Jesus goes to high school and Jesus to miniseries, that's ridiculous. It, it's absurd. It, it's the, the claims that Paul Bashers make that that it's the typical prosecutor just taking everything in the kitchen sink and throwing it throwing it into an indictment, hoping that something sticks. So they want to blame Paul. You didn't tell us what you know. Um, Mary gave Jesus for his twelfth birthday. How dare you? You're not giving us any information on Jesus. Douglas complained that we learn little about the teachings his teachings from the New Testament, from, from the Scriptures. That's ridiculous. And then goes on to say that Christ did not accept that he was Jesus the Messiah. Douglas says that he was not the Messiah come to save anyone. That's, that, that's, a, totally, um, that's a totally Jewish position, right? Douglas, well, had, um, Douglas had quoted Matthew 121, 
in, in calling him Emmanuel and insisting that his name is Emmanuel. And, and right in Matthew one twenty one it says, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Yahshua. Uh, I'm sorry, Matthew one twenty one instead of Matthew one Douglas quoted Matthew one twenty three, right? He neglected Matthew one twenty one. In Matthew one twenty one it says, Thou shalt call his name Yahshua, for he shall save his people from their sins. So Douglas's Bible must be missing Matthew one twenty one. And and it has Matthew one twenty two. That's incredible. I'm concerned, Bill, too. Is, is Douglas's Bible missing the epistle of John? Because if I'm not mistaken, it's in the first epistle. Who is a liar but he that denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. So isn't Douglas basically explicitly denying that Jesus was Messiah? Well, well in John 141, it, it, it says in John 141, and it comes from the mouth of the the, the future apostle Andrew, it says, we have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. At John chapter 4, verses 25 and 26, the apostle records the following exchange between a woman of Samaria and Jesus Christ, or Yahshua Christ. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Yahshua said to her, I that speak unto you am he. So Douglas denies John. I mean, Paul didn't write that. John wrote that. John wrote that years after Paul died, right? Is there any part of the New Testament that A, Douglas has read, and that B, Douglas doesn't want to throw away? Well, Well, probably not, but whoever wrote this for Douglas... It is well, well, a deceiver, but but well, whoever was probably a rabbi. These are the arguments of the Paul bashers. When when you meet a Paul basher, they have based their decision to be a Paul basher on arguments. If not these arguments exactly, or Graeber's arguments exactly, arguments very similar. And they're attaching Clay Douglas's name to it because they probably don't want to publish it under their own name, you know, Rabbi Jaime Rothstein or whatever it might be. But Douglas must be in agreement with this or else he wouldn't stick his name on it and circulate it. Well, well Douglas pretending to be a Christian, his claims concerning the Bible would probably get a warm reception from readers of the Trumpet or the Jerusalem Post. But they have no place in Christianity. And I'm going to mention, you know, a lot of people love W.G. Finlay. And he was a Paul basher. And he admitted getting his um, material, which his Paul bashing was based on, right from Jocelyn Prince, the Jewish rabbi, Newark, New Jersey. That, that's, that, that's the mindset of the Paul bashers. The Paul bashers are Jews. This all comes from Jews. The denial of Christ as Messiah well, when the New Testament plainly states that he's, he is the Messiah, well, when references to Daniel's prophecies are made which plainly state that he is the Messiah, the, the, the denial of Christ as the Messiah is, is an entirely Jewish device. It, it's, it, it's not Christian in, in, in any way, shape, or form. It's crazy. It, it's crazy that Christians get caught up in this. All right. 
reference five? Yes. Clay Douglas states, did you know that Paul, Saul of Tarsus, wrote almost two-thirds of the New Testament? I'll bet you did. <laughs> right. I would, counter, <laughs> I would counter, did you know that Clay Douglas probably hasn't read three-thirds of the New Testament? I'll bet you didn't. Oh, he hasn't read one-third. Did you know that Paul of Tarsus wrote almost two-thirds of the New Testament? I'll bet you didn't. They're the words of Clay Douglas. And then he's right. I didn't know that. And I, I, I could break that down because I break it down in my paper, right? Yeah, you know, having having read the Bible for so many years, I never imagined Paul wrote two thirds of it. So, so we're going to see how accurate that statement is, right? I counted the pages. I didn't have to count the pages; they're numbered, right? In the Novum Testamentum Greca, that the NA twenty seven, right, the twenty seventh edition of the Nestle A Land Greek text. I counted all the pages and I broke them down by apostle, basically, right? There are 680 pages of Greek text in the Novum Testamentum Greca. 87 of them are the Gospel of Matthew. That's 12.79%. 62 belong to Mark. That's 9.11%. Of the works attributed to John, his Gospel, his Epistles, and the Revelation, they consume 136 pages. That's exactly 20, 20%. Now, right there is 41.9% of the Bible that Paul didn't, of the New Testament that Paul did not write. So, so already Douglas is wrong, right? Now, aside from that, we have the epistles of James, Peter, and Jude, which together occupy 30 pages, or 4.41%. The parts written by Luke, both his gospel and the Acts, occupy 186 pages, or 27.35%. Luke wrote the, the largest portion of the, of the New Testament. Paul's epistles, including Hebrews, because there's no doubt in my mind that Hebrews was written by Paul, occupy 179 pages, or 26.32% of the New Testament. So Paul really only wrote a quarter of the New Testament. That's a far cry, two-thirds. If we take Paul and Luke together, well, we only have about 54%, not, not quite 54%. So, so that's still not two-thirds. What would the significance be, though, even if he had written two-thirds? Does that somehow mean anything? Well, well, right, because as long as they agree with the other one-third and with the Old Testament, then there's not a problem. And, and if we had all of Paul's epistles, we probably may have two-thirds. That there, there, there are many between him and Luke, but because there are many epistles that, he wrote that we don't have. It's yeah, you know, claims like that are blatantly wrong, but they're they're designed to surprise people and to trap the unsuspecting into listening to the rest of your arguments, right? So if I said, "Did you know Jesus preached the entire Sermon on the Mount?" I'll bet you didn't. It doesn't mean anything. It's irrelevant. Well, well, right. That, that would be re irrelevant. But he's just trying to shock you into thinking, wow, Paul wrote almost all the New Testament. That's crazy. Well, well, it discredits almost all the New Testament. In the mind. People would just walk away from that thinking almost all the New Testament is no good because Paul wrote it instead of Jesus. It, it's Jewish subterfuge.
It's an ad hominem attack against the entire New Testament. Maybe we could ask Clay Douglas, did you know that some rabbi wrote two-thirds of this paper? I'll bet you did. Well, right. Reference six. Clay Douglas states, Paul, Saul, never met Jesus in the flesh. He only claimed some strange vision and proceeded to then paganize the teachings of Jesus until he created Pauline Christianity. Because there are no known writings from Jesus, the actual apostles or anyone that actually knew him in the flesh, other than perhaps James, most of what he taught is lost forever. Why? More on this topic later. Well, I, I, I guess Jews would prefer that it's lost forever, wouldn't they? This is really amazing. Well, well it, is, it, it is amazing. And while it's no new revelation that Paul, quote-unquote, never met Jesus in the flesh, well, well it, it's um, probable that he did um, under the circumstances described in Acts chapter 9, because Christ indeed was in the flesh. Paul certainly did not paganize the teachings of Christ. A detailed examination of Paul's writing would reveal that none of it would be found contrary to either the Old Testament or the recorded words of Joshua Christ. And, and we do have the, record, the recorded words of Christ simply because he didn't write them and sign them doesn't mean that they're not his words. When we have multiple witnesses testifying to the same thing and those testimonies are found to be consistent and true, then we accept them at the value, at, at, at face value. A, a, um, well, well, since Douglas only makes blanket allegations and he offers no specific examples with, with which to support his blasphemy, what we, what we can only respond with general statements. There are no specifics. Douglas offers no specifics, probably because he hasn't researched anything for himself or he just has no specifics. It's a harebrained statement that Paul wrote almost two-thirds of the New Testament. He's only parroting some Jew. Of course we don't have any writing from Yahshua. Even in the Old Testament, Moses wrote the laws. And the prophets wrote down the designs of our Father and Creator. He didn't come down and write them himself. So in the New Testament, the same thing occurred. He selected men to record what he wanted us to know. Yet, there are no known writings from the actual apostles. Now, Douglas makes that statement here. He says, because there are no known writings from Jesus, comma, the actual apostles, comma, or anyone that actually knew him in the flesh, other than perhaps James. So, so Douglas is basically stating that John didn't write John and know Christ, that Matthew didn't write Matthew and know Christ. In other words, the person, the Matthew that wrote the Gospel of Matthew wasn't the Matthew at the tax office that Christ told to follow me. Now, that's what Douglas is saying. It's a, it, this is a total position of ignorance again, right? It, it's a lot of words and a lot of accusations, and, and, and it's totally ignorant. How could he claim to be a Christian? Well, when, 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 somebody see, when, when a Christian sees this, he should dismiss everything that this man says. Well, he's basically saying the Bible's worthless. Well, well he is, but he's lying. It, it, it's lie after lie after lie about the Bible. Not only about Paul, but about the Bible as a whole. 
Jesus isn't the Messiah come to save anyone. And people buy this stuff. I don't get it. I don't get why we have so many Paul bashers in identity Christianity. Because it's things, it's this or it's things just like this that they base their Paul bashing upon. So what specific point? Can you point to some part in Acts where Paul says if you commit a sin, go have sex with a temple prostitute? I mean, where, how is Paul paganizing Christianity? I'd like him to, you know, give me some chapters and verses. Well, well right. It, it's, it's another blanket statement. It's, it's another ad hominem charge in the indictment filled with ad hominem charges. You can't back it up, though, because it's an invalid accusation. There's no substantiation for it whatsoever. You know, this sounds a lot like this very feminist, probably closeted lesbian, very thinly closeted lesbian theology professor I had seven or eight years ago. She said that Mark was written by a woman... Matthew was not written by Matthew, but by it was a literary hoax written by people using his name, that John was written 100 years after John died by people using his name, and that none of the um, letters of Paul, aside from two or three, were actually written by Paul, and that most of them were written by people using Paul's name, and that most of the New Testament was a literary hoax. And she was teaching a theology class at a Catholic university. So it seemed bizarre that you, somebody, the dean of the department, would select somebody to teach a theology class who all they're doing is they're undermining theology. But that's the state of modern Christianity. That, that's what's going on in all of our seminaries right now. The Jews have taken them all over. And, and that's what they've been teaching these seminary students for many years now. And, and they, they have been able to discredit the scripture, discredit ancient histories, and they've been able to do that so that they could mold society in their image. And it's incredible to me that people have gone along with it, but for a hundred years now, people have gone along with this. If you want to believe the Jewish version of the creation of Scripture, of the creation of, of our history books, you have to believe that every white man back 4,000 years has been a liar. Every white man for 4,000 years, has, has, whoever picked a pen up, and wrote a book for 4,000 years has been a liar. That's so it's a 4,000-year-long conspiracy. Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, Tacitus, Josephus, Strabo, they're all just liars. Well, well right. We, we have unbroken chains from generation to generation of writers who have cited and quoted and drawn lessons from and, and explained writings of and 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 expounded on the stories of the writers from the generations before them. Yeah, you could go back and, and trace back Christian writers and, and, and profane historians from, from the 6th century who quoted writers in the 5th in, in century who quoted writers in the 4th century, in the 3rd century, in the 2nd century, and we have a lot of those original manuscripts or, or manuscripts that are very old, which were copies of original manuscripts, and and, and we can't um, we can't reject our entire culture without imagining 
that generation after generation of our own fathers who read these things, who understood these things, who believed these things, and that's why they passed them down to us, that are, they're all liars. That's what the Jews want us to believe. The Jews want us to believe that. The Jews want us to believe that every generation of our own fathers who transmitted all of these writings down through the ages to us today, that they were all liars. That's what the damn Jews want us to believe. And they, the Jews, are the only source of truth in the world. Well, well once they get you to discredit five, six, seven thousand years of your heritage and your history, they can set themselves up as the light. And that's what they've attempted to do these past um, 200 years in, in Western civilization. Actually, it's a little more than 200 years. Since the dawn of the Enlightenment, they, they've attempted to do that. With humanism and, and all of the egalitarianism and, and all of their other isms. The, the, um, the, the writings of the Gospels, <clears throat> not only have we actually dug papyri out of the ground that, that, that dates to the second century A.D., but we see in, in the Christian writers who have existed down through the ages, what we see generation after generation of testimony that all these things existed, all of these things were venerated, all of these things were accepted, up to each of those times when those individual writers wrote. So, so we have an unbroken chain of testimony going in, in, in the writings that have been preserved in our culture that these things are true. And that's how we know they're true. You could pick up, with all of his flaws, you could pick up Eusebius, and he has a lot of flaws, and you can see what existed in his time. And from Eusebius, you could move on to Jerome, or you could go backwards to Irenaeus, and you could pick up their writings and see what they venerated and what they ostracized and what they accepted in their time. And you could go backwards or forwards, it doesn't matter. You can see that our traditions have been passed down from the actual time of Christ in the first century A.D. And you could start working your way backwards from there all the way to Noah. You could pick up the writings of the Greek philosophers and you could see the Hebrew influences and know that those writings existed when the Bible says they existed. You, you could pick up the Sumerian inscriptions and you could see the same idioms used as you would find in the, in the writings of the, of, of the, um, the Torah or, or the Pentateuch, if you want me to use the Greek word, for the books of Moses. Well, well, the fact is that the structure of our society is very visible in our history and in our literature. And the structure of our civilization, I mean, is very, very visible 
and, and all of the pillars of our civilization are very, very visible in our history and our literature. And we can't allow the Jew to kick them out from underneath us. And, and we've allowed that for 100 years now. And Clay Douglas is an accomplice. All the Paul Bashers are accomplices. Clay Douglas is an accomplice. Graeber was an accomplice. They're absolutely all accomplices. Whether they're knowingly or unknowingly, they're still doing the work of the devil. Right. And it's a sickness in Christianity, and it's a sickness in identity Christianity. These things certainly don't belong. Paul bashers do not belong in Christian identity. Paul bashers should be ostracized from Christian identity. Ralph Daigle, Dave Jones. Uh, there's a lot of names I don't want to mention because the people are rather private. Jerry Kirk, my favorite clown. Well, my favorite clown in Florida, anyway. All right. Reference seven? Yes. Clay Douglas states, of personal knowledge of Jesus, Paul had none. The philosophies and theologies that he created were of his own conception, and these, those colored by his education as a Pharisee in a Hellenistic world and the pagan religions which surrounded him, his own writings evidence these influences. And it's clear, of course, Douglas isn't writing these because I don't think Douglas even knows what the word Hellenistic means. Well, that's probably true. Here again, Douglas spews truths. He spews truths mixed with half-truths and makes blanket allegations while offering no specific instances of error or wrongdoing. How, how do you fight a shadow? You can't really box a shadow and win, right? Paul was educated in both Judaism well, and, and I'll call the religion of the first century in Jerusalem Judaism. That's proper. Which he later realized was nothing but a corrupted form of the Hebrew religion of his fathers. And Paul was educated in classical Greek learning. That's true. So Douglas is telling half-truths. But Paul was in a unique position to fulfill that task which Yahweh required to bring the gospel to the lost Israelites of Europe, which we've already discussed here. Only a man who could speak to both Judeans from a Judean perspective and to Greeks from a Greek perspective, and when I say Greeks, I, I basically mean all of the pagan Greek-speaking peoples of Europe, which includes Romans and Galatians. Paul could speak to Greeks from a Greek perspective and Paul had the capability to perform that task, which very few men who were acquainted with the Hebrew scriptures had. And, and Paul did not teach pagan philosophy because everything that he taught came right from the Gospels or from the Old Testament, which he quoted constantly. Paul was the first teacher of what we call today Israel identity. He was the first Christian identity teacher. And I would profess that unless one studies the classics, one is not properly qualified to teach Christian identity. I realized this years ago, and today I'm quite happy that I did read the classics and thankful to God for it. 
Without a knowledge of the Greek and Roman myths in the first century, one cannot convince either Greeks or Romans that they are lost Israelites, which was Paul's task. One could not convince them that their nations were among those nations which descended from Abraham and the promises of the Old Testament. First century Christians did not disconnect the Old Testament from the New like these silly-ass Judeo-Christians do. First century Christians looked for the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in themselves. And that's what Paul taught. Paul taught the Romans that they were the descendants of Abraham in Romans chapter 4, where he refers to Abraham as their forefather, and where he repeats the promise to Abraham and defines the faith of Abraham as having been Abraham's belief that nations would come out of his loins. And Abraham believed God and was considered righteous. That's what Paul is explaining in Romans chapter 4. And Paul is telling the Romans that they are one of those nations which came from Abraham's loins. Christians read this and they don't understand it because they don't understand ancient history and they don't understand their their Old Testaments. They don't understand the classics and the myths of the Greeks and the Romans and their classical histories. You have to understand that if you're going to properly teach Christian identity. If you're going to properly teach Christianity, period, you have to understand that. Paul told the Romans, the proofs are in his epistles, that he knew that they were lost Israelites. In, in Romans 123, 124, 125, 136, 1, what, 126, 131, 132, he, he told them they had the truth of God, they changed it into a lie, they were covenant breakers. He, he told them over and over again that they were lost Israelites. But that's not easily seen in the blind, Judaized, modern translations, and it's also not easily seen at, at all in church teachings because it's non-existent. They won't teach it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul told the, the Dorian Greeks that they were with Moses under the cloud. How, how does a Judeo-Christian understand that if he doesn't understand ancient history? How does a Christian identity teacher understand that if he doesn't understand ancient history? Most of them don't. There's a great swath of Christian identity teachers that couldn't explain to you how Paul told the, door, the, the Corinthians that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So even a lot of our own people can't address the Paul bashers because they can't explain those chapters. At least they can't explain them properly. So, so it's a shame. But Paul was—he—he he was schooled in the pagan philosophies, and Douglas is right about that. But that equipped him for the task at hand. And Douglas doesn't understand that because he doesn't understand Christian identity. He doesn't understand history. He doesn't understand the Old Testament prophecies, and he doesn't understand the point and the purpose of Christianity. 
and if you don't understand the classics and if you don't understand um, the, the pagan writings, the, the profane Greek and Roman writings, you can't properly teach Christian identity. Paul understood, and Paul did. He was, a, he was the first teacher of Christian identity. But a Judeo-Christian would never get that. How could they? They can't. They, they can't because they discard the Old Testament, and, and they really have no basis for the New Testament. If you discard the Old Testament, you have no foundation at all for the New Testament. Well, it's the equivalent of saying that I'm going to build a three-story house, and I'm, just going, I'm going to leave out the basement and the first floor. Well, then you have no house. Well, well, exactly. And that's what they do. I mean, if that's what they want to do, what can we really say to them? They're, they're childish, naive, immature, and as I said, they're, they're so arrogant, they don't realize just how ignorant they truly are. Absolutely. I'm going to read my. I'm going to read a section of my Ephesians. I can't wait to present Paul, Paul, Paul's epistles on on my own. I mean, I went through them once with Eli James, but that that wasn't even a practice run. It it, it was horrible. But but um, I can't wait to present Paul's epistles on my own. Uh, I'd like to read a section of Ephesians chapter three. I'm going to read verses one through nine. This is from the Christianity New Testament. I could defend all of my Greek. I could defend every word of my Greek translation here. For this cause, I, Paul, captive of Christ Joshua, on behalf of you of the nations, if indeed you have heard of the management of the family, of the favor of Yahweh, in other words, one specific family has the favor of God, which has been given to me in regard to you, seeing that by a revelation the mystery was made known to me, just as I had briefly written before, besides which reading, you are able to perceive my understanding in the mystery of the anointed, not the mystery of Christ. Christ isn't a mystery. The, the anointed, who the children of Israel are in the world, that's the mystery, because God cast them all out of Israel by, by um, 676 B.C. and told them they would lose their identity, but also told them that they would return to him. So the mystery is where they are. That's the mystery. Besides which reading, you are able to perceive my understanding in the mystery of the anointed, which in other generations had not been made known to the sons of men. The, these people, these Romans, they didn't understand that they were Israelites. Paul told them they were, and history proves that they were. But they didn't understand it. On a day-to-day -day basis, they had no idea. The same thing with the Greeks, the same thing with Galatians, the same thing with the Scythians. They had no idea. And Paul, who was adept in the Greek and Roman classics, proved to them that they were those people. And that's why they accepted Christianity. It's the universal church that corrupted this teaching. The universal church corrupted this. At one time, men knew how to read which in other generations had not been made known to the sons of men, as it is now revealed in his holy ambassadors and prophets by the Spirit. Those nations which are joint heirs and a joint body and partners of the promise in Christ Yahshua through the good message, of which I have become a servant. In accordance... with the gift of the favor of Yahweh which has been given to me. 
in accordance with the operation of his power. To me, the least of all the saints has been given the savor to announce the good message to the nations, the nations that descended from Abraham's loins, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 4. The unsearchable riches of the anointed, not of Christ, of the anointed, and to enlighten all concerning the management of the household, of the mystery. They want to take that word oikonomia. Oikonomia means management of a household. It means the management of a family. They want to take that word and translate it stewardship, as if the mystery was the mystery was being stewarded, if I can use steward as a verb. The mystery was, re, was the object of the stewardship. The mystery wasn't the object of the stewardship. It's the household, the family, was the object of the, of, of, of the stewardship. And the family, where that family was, was the mystery because it wasn't elucidated who they were in the Old Testament except that the children of Israel were put off in punishment by God. And when the children of Israel were put off in punishment by God, there were no Germans. There were no, there were no um, Germanic tribes at all. Yeah, there were Romans and there were Dorian Greeks and Danan Greeks, but they were Israelites too. And they departed from the main body of Israel all by 1100 B.C. And that could be established in the classics also, and in the Bible. How many people read the classics today? Well, right. None, none, a few, maybe a few, maybe a few, um, maybe a few liberal arts majors who read, who, who, who read portions of the classics and then they listen to thousands of pages and, and hours of Jewish sermons regarding the classics and what they mean because it's Jewish academia, it, it's Jewish scholarship which rules our universities today. So, so the world is taught through Jewish eyes. And right, and even in our, our English literature class in high school, we read multiple Holocaust survivor books and it made me wonder why this is an English literature class. We're reading books written by people in regards to events that probably didn't happen but don't concern us. We weren't victims. We weren't perpetrators. It didn't happen in our nation, and it didn't happen to our citizens. So why do we need to devote so much of our educational curriculum to studying their history? It's all a diversion. We don't get to learn about our history. Absolutely. It's multiculturalism. Welcome to diversity. I'll finish reading Ephesians 3.9. And to enlighten all concerning the management of the household. That's the household of the children of Israel that were promised the new covenant back in Jeremiah chapter 31. Of the mystery which was concealed from the ages by Yahweh. The prophecies that Israel would be blind. Who is blind but my servant? By whom all things are being established. Paul was teaching Christian identity. The prophecy, Paul refers to the prophecy, the prophecy that Israelites would have become many nations. 
Paul refers to mystery. What's the mystery? The mystery is who they were. To them, and only to them, did Paul deliver the gospel. Without a classical education, Paul never would have accomplished such a task. No wonder that today the Jews and their proselytes despise classical education and have succeeded in removing it from our educational system. Even most humanities departments in today's universities are only a parody of what they were in ages past, a Jewish parody, a Jewish caricature. Frederick Nietzsche, you know, I didn't really get into it too much, but Douglas quoted Frederick Nietzsche in the introduction to his Paul bashing material, and we'll get into it later on in Douglas's Paul bashing material, probably the week after next or the week after that. But Frederick Nietzsche, God is dead and despised Paul of Tarsus, and much to his discredit, he was a professor of the classics. And realizing none of this, he chose to belittle and despise Paul of Tarsus and to belittle Christianity. And Clayton Douglas is his disciple, basically. I think we should leave it off here tonight and pick up with um, Douglas's statement that Paul's writings clearly contradict Jesus next week. And um, thank you for being here. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Paul bashing has to go. It has no place in Christianity. And we should be active defenders of Paul of Tarsus. Because he was the first Christian identity teacher. Praise Yahweh. I just wanted to say, Clay Douglas and all these clowns, they really have nothing other than cheap insults and unsubstantiated claims. And, and beyond that, claims that cannot be substantiated. It's not a mere matter that they're not offering the evidence. There is no evidence to offer. Absolutely. The, the, evidence, that, that, that the evidence they offer is, is well, well, it's terribly scant. What we're going to get into, um, <clears throat> that these opening arguments of Douglas's are, are really weak. They're blanket, um, they're blanket accusations that there's no substance to them whatsoever. But we are going to get into more dangerous and more specific accusations against Paul of Tarsus as we proceed. And some of them are craftily created um, lies that, that actually work in, in dissuading a lot of people. And, and we'll get into it. I don't know if we'll get into it next week, but in the coming weeks, we, we will see some of the better arguments. So some of the better um, lies <clears throat> created by the Paul Bashers. They are right. in Douglas material. We will see it, but we we have to suffer through the the sophistic stuff to to get to the the, the real treachery. Well, it's all childish sophistry for the most part. Well, well, absolutely, no doubt. I will be here next Friday, and and um, I will have something different. I will have Warrior Priest on. We know him as Warrior Priest. He wants to talk about the Scottish Covenanters. Warrior Priest has done quite a few um, excellent, pot, uh, excellent YouTube videos. He, he has a couple of YouTube channels. Um, 
what, where where he propagates Christian identity material and and he actually um, promotes the Christianian New Testament and my website and and that's a good deed and I gave him the opportunity to cover any topic he wanted on a program here with me next Friday because I'll be out of state all week and I'll be in New York actually and I won't really have time to prepare a program and he's actually helping me out but he'll have the opportunity to do a program next Friday with me and and it'll be a first for him and I'm sure he'll do a great job he wants to talk about the Scottish Covenanters so that might be pretty interesting because I honestly don't know much about them myself so I look forward to that and Brian I'll be here with you next Saturday and and we'll be presenting against the Paul Bashers part seven excellent Thank you. Praise God. And good night.